Welcome to the Coach's Edge podcast dedicated to teaching, sharing, and learning the game. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Steve Kramer of Kramer Basketball, founder of the Coach's Edge. And on today's episode, it's another deep dive into defense. We've gotten great feedback from all of our episodes really digging into the game of defense, and this episode is no different. Coach Matt Dennis joins the podcast. He was an assistant and head coach at Kalamazoo Valley Community College before transitioning to Otsego High School in Southwest Michigan. He's going into his fifth year during that time. They've won three conference titles, a district title. They've been ranked in the top 10 in the state three different seasons. And he really breaks down the force baseline defense where even on a podcast, it's really easy to see the big picture, to visualize how he's breaking down the game. He does a fantastic job and the results speak for themselves with how successful this defense has been. So if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate and review. That goes a really long way as we continue to build out the coach's edge. And one housekeeping thing before we get going, our Coach's Edge members just received our five-month-long in-season strength and conditioning program. We know pandemic aside, basketball season is a, is a really long season. So being able to give all of our Coach's Edge members a one-stop shop, grab it and go of everything that you would need for an in-season strength and conditioning program from the major dynamic lifts, some of the complementary lifts, some of the core exercises, dynamic warm-ups and stretches, everything is in there for all of our coaches. So if you're interested in learning more about the Coach's Edge, you wanna get access to this in the future, we'll open it back up for new members in March. My whole thing is once our, our new members come in at the beginning of basketball season, we wanna serve them. I don't wanna worry about selling our product during basketball season. We're, we're working with our coaches who are members and then we'll open it back up in March and accept a handful of new members for the Coach's Edge. A special thank you to Coach Dennis for taking the time to be on the show. I know you're gonna benefit a lot from it. Let's get to it, but before that, a quick word. I'd like to give a warm Coach's Edge welcome to Coach Matt Dennis of Otsego High School. Coach, thanks for taking the time to be on the show. Yeah, appreciate having me. It's going to be a lot of fun. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We go back to, um, there was a summer I lived in Kalamazoo with the Jaggers, and you're friends with the Jagger family, and we played in a men's league that summer together, and you essentially were coaching back then. You were like our certified player coach, <laughs> our unofficial players coach. Oh yeah, we, we had some good times. And actually, uh, when we were talking about doing this, I was thinking back to playing in the courthouse league together, the five on five, and then even traveling up to, to Gaylord to play in the Gus Macker, uh, yes. the three on three. So brought back, you know, some good memories of playing. And I don't know if uh, much of my coaching acumen was, was down back then, but certainly a lot of good times with basketball. Something must have worked because, as I remember, we won that that men's league, so yeah. it, de it definitely didn't hurt us. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, well, it's nice to have a player like you on the floor with us. Uh, that, that helps guys like me look good. So, it's <laughs> uh, good stuff. Good memories. Um, so, coach, give us a little bit uh, background on yourself, some of your coaching experience before we get in, take a deep dive into the force baseline defense. Yeah. Yeah, well, really, I got started right out of college coaching. Our 
I played two years of junior college basketball at Camas Valley Community College. Our assistant coach left. And what I really wanted to do was become a coach. And, and our coach, Dick Schiltz, knew that. And he said, hey, Matt, would you think about going to Western, staying on at KVCC and help me out as my assistant? So I hung up my, you know, my shoes at that time playing uh, in you know, college and stuck with the men's league and that kind of stuff. But started my coaching career was five years an assistant at KVCC. Um, took a brief hiatus, uh, started a family and, uh, you know, did some of that, that stuff at the college, but not coach. So did some things there. And then coach Schultz retired. I was in a position to apply for that position, got that job was the men's coach for four years. Absolutely loved it. Uh, but I found out over those four years that it was, it was tough to have a family, have a full-time job and coach on top of that. So too many nights of getting home when the kids are in bed and then in the morning I was leaving before they were getting up and I just wasn't seeing them enough. So stepped away again from the game just for a year. And I didn't really know where, you know, God was going to lead me, what direction I was going, but I knew I wanted to be in, in coaching somewhere. Well, within a year, um, Otsigo, uh, somebody had just sent me an email said, Hey coach, if you're interested, we're looking for uh, a coach at the high school. Would you be interested in coming over and taking a look? And so I, I called the AD and put in my resume and got the job there. So I, I kind of bounced around. It's not that typical, like, oh, I've been coaching for 20 straight years or whatever. It was, you know, I, I really tried to let uh, let God lead me in the direction of where I should be. And this is a great fit. Otsego High School, I'm going into my fifth year. I've uh, been blessed with some great players, uh, some good talent, and uh, we've had a lot of success, a lot of fun. So that's kind of my coaching journey up to this point, and, and I'm loving it. Very cool. Um, love hearing different coaches share their their story, their background. No one is exactly the same, and I think that's you know what makes coaching so special. And it really is a really is a calling. Um, you call this the force baseline defense, and before we hit record, you said you know I, we call it that, not the no middle defense. Um, so before we get into asking some questions, can you talk about how that uh, differs? Yeah. The, the force baseline gives you a real clear picture of where we're trying to send the basketball. And it's easy for the players to recognize, but as coaches, uh, when we hear no middle, there's lots of teams that don't want the ball to get to the middle of the floor for, for whatever their reason is. Um, but not every team wants to force a baseline because it may be how you're, you're trying to control the gaps and close them. It might be just how you're trying to defend the post. Uh, all of that leads to no middle, but, when you're forcing baseline, you're truly trying to get the ball in a position with the, the smallest amount of court possible to work with. And then making those players, you know, have to make this tough decisions, you know, when you're forcing them that way. So that's why we call it force baseline, very vivid picture for our players to, to get an idea. But I think it helps coaches when I'm talking about it, whether it's on a podcast or in a clinic, they know exactly, you know, where I'm going with it. And, you know, I had the chance to attend your virtual clinic um, last month on the force baseline defense. And I absolutely loved it. And so I was really glad to get you on the podcast and share some of your knowledge about it. So first off, why force baseline? Well, in my playing experience, I think that's where we all start is what, what have we experienced as players? What did we like? What didn't we like? What did our coaches do? Uh, I've played it before, but I've also played kind of the pack line defense, which is, seems to be more of uh, more teams are doing that than, than anything defensively. Uh, but the force baseline, in my opinion, gives you more control over what the offense is trying to do. 
they make it so that the, the court is smaller. The offense has to try to work in a confined space and it's harder to run your regular offense. When you run the pack line, there's a lot more ball reversal. There's a lot more opportunity to run sets or to run certain actions easily. And it's not to say that the defense doesn't work. It's just that the, whatever the team practices, whatever your opponent practices uh, every day, I think they are more likely to be able to run that against the pack line. Well, you don't practice against a force baseline every day. So you're going to have to adjust to our defense no matter what. And maybe you can still run your offense pretty well, uh, but it's not going to be the way that you've done it in practice every day. And ho hopefully not, you won't be able to run it well, but if you can, it's going to be because of adjustments you've made. No, that makes perfect sense. How did you find out that for your program at Otsego, right? Because just because you ran something similar as a player doesn't mean it's going to work for your mm -hmm. kids. How did you find out that it was the right defense for you and your program? It's, it has a lot to do with how can I get the most players on the floor? I, I, one of the things as, as a player is you, you work hard, you do everything that the coach is asking you to do. You want your opportunity to be able to show that. Well, as a player, I ran the force baseline defense and knew what that was about. Then I ran the pack line defense. And while I wasn't, you know, a, a bad athlete, I could not guard somebody who was real quick going both directions. So I, I knew that as a player, that was a weakness of mine, that lateral movement. So I was somewhat limited, but when, when we ran the force baseline, I knew exactly what I had to do. I knew the rules. I knew the positioning. I knew where my help was going to be every single time. So I could go out there and much more confidently play that defense, whether I was on a guard, whether I was on a wing, might be a little taller, a little more athletic than I was. Uh, so I had more confidence. So I take that into my coaching and I say, the, in Otsego, we don't have just tons and tons of kids to choose from. We, we do have to make cuts each year, but we basically have, you know, 15 to 20 players try out for the team and we're selecting 12 to 14 of them to be on the team. So you're picking those, those 12 to 14 and how do I make it so each one of those kids has a chance to buy into what we're doing and to contribute? on the team and the force baseline, I think gives us the most opportunity because uh, sometimes we get kids who are baseball kids or football kids, you know, that's their favorite sport. They like basketball, but it's not their number one sport. Well, they're still good athletes and they, but they don't have all the tools necessarily that we like to see in our, our players. Uh, well, they all can play defense and when they all get on the same page and they're all digging in and they're forcing that baseline, you know, it makes it really hard to play against. So there's kind of a combination of things, but I can play more kids. The kids who aren't as athletic still have a chance to make a contribution and feel like they can get on the floor and do something. Absolutely. Let's give a, an overview. So what are some of the basic concepts of the force baseline defense? You know, if you're speaking with a coach, breaking it down for the first time to someone who is trying to learn more about it and maybe they want to run it. What? The, the best way to kind of look at it is the, the top of the key, kind of view it as a roof of a house. And where the point guard has the ball up at the top of the key, you want to keep that ball on top of the roof. So you don't want to let it penetrate down uh, below the three-point line very much. You certainly don't want to let it get into the paint. And, and that's where the whole thing starts. Even when the ball gets out on the wings, if we think about that roof line still, is that's where we want to keep the ball as much as possible. Now, when we... When we're forcing baseline, you think about now the walls of the house are coming down from, from the sides. 
is we aren't going to keep them perfectly down the the walls of the house. They do get in a little bit, but we force baseline and we try to keep them out of the paint. So we're really trying to keep them uh, and put the, the dribbler going into the baseline and the free throw lane where those two lines meet. That's where we're trying to angle it. So the ball isn't going directly at the hoop anymore. So that right there is kind of the shell of what the force baseline is. Keep it on top of the roof as much as possible. When it penetrates, penetrate down into the lane line and to the baseline. And then we have some rotations out of that where our help side comes over and, and helps us out and make sure that it stays out of the paint. So you mentioned the, the roof of the house and, and the walls of the outside of the house. Where does that transition from being the roof to the wall? It's really anytime that, that the ball gets on the, the wing. Okay, so it gets outside the lane lines. Um, anytime it gets outside, if we drew a, a lines straight down the entire court, so the lane lines went the whole length of the court. Once that ball gets outside those lane lines, now we're kind of on the side of the roof. And, and now we're, we're starting to want to keep it over on that side. When they penetrate, we want them to penetrate, like I said, to where the lane meets the baseline uh, and, and keep the ball in that third of the floor as much as possible. Got it. That makes, that makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about, so if that's the shell, what does the defense look like for those other four players that aren't guarding the ball? Well, one of the unique things, uh, not just about the force baseline defense, but any kind of help side defense is we want the opposite guys to be in a help side position. And in our program, we start by having those help side players be right in the middle of the floor. So they're in the middle of the paint and they're really trying to make the court seem small. That's the biggest thing. Uh, so if, if the ball is on the wing already, our help side defenders are in the middle of the paint, the longest pass that can be made is a skip pass. Well, I feel that any of the players in our program can adjust defensively on a skip pass. There's enough time to get back out to your player to get in the right position. Uh, so we don't leave players, you know, two steps off their man, or we don't leave them. So they only have one foot in the paint. We get both feet in the paint and then we'll adjust on that, that skip pass. Uh, when the ball is on the wing, we also want to deny any reversal pass. So that means if you're the point guard and the, you're defending the point guard, once the ball is thrown out of their hands, you want to make sure that you're getting up in a little bit of a denial position to not let them reverse the ball one thing that really stifles most high school offenses. And I'll even put this in the category of a lot of college offenses. When I was coaching at the community college level, this, this was the case as well. If you take away the ball reversal or you make it have to go so far back towards half court, you really stall the offense. So while they still may get a reversal, it is not within the flow of the regular offensive sets. So, we want to take it away if at all possible, but if they do get it, we want to, we want to mess up the flow. This is good stuff. Let's talk a couple location scenarios. I'm going to throw at you. If, if the basketball is on the wing and there's a player on the strong side corner, are you inviting that pass down to the corner? Yeah. And this is one place that some coaches hear force baseline or they hear a pressure defense. Sometimes I'll refer to it as, as a force baseline pressure defense. And, 
what we want to do in our defense is we play the point guard straight up, but we sag off of the wings just a little bit in the beginning. Okay. And the reason we do that and we don't deny the wings, because that's where a lot of teams hear pressure. They start thinking, Oh, you're denying everything. We don't want to deny everything. We want the ball to get to the side. So once the ball gets on the sideline, now we get on top of the ball on the wing and force it to the baseline. Same thing in that corner scenario that you just mentioned. If they make one more pass from the wing down into that deep corner, that's perfect. They're making the, the court even smaller to work with. When it gets down in that corner, our job is to get up on the high side. And again, we don't want the ball reversal, so we don't want to come and back up top. We want them to dribble the baseline. And there's not a whole lot of room to move at that point on the baseline. So it plays right into what we want teams to do. And there are a lot of teams who will pass it down there until they get trapped or until the guy steps in the sideline because we're on the baseline and goes out of bounds because they're trying to get by us. And, and then they kind of take that part of their offense out because there just isn't anything to work with. So are you jumping when the ball goes to the corner, are you denying it from getting back up to the wing? Yeah. Each, each time it gets down, it goes from the, the uh, top of the key to the wing. We want to deny the pass coming back up to the top of the key. If it goes from the wing down into the corner, we want to deny the ball coming back up to the wing. Okay. I just want to make sure. So anytime the basketball's on the wing, we're denying the reversal back up top. We're inviting the basketball to come to the strong side corner balls there. We're not letting it get back up to the middle. And then you talked about the off ball, the help side defense. We're giving up the skip pass plenty of time for us to close out. And, you know, essentially if they skip it from the right wing to the left wing, you're right back into forcing baseline on the other side. Yeah. The, the biggest thing on the skip pass is getting your players in position to force baseline again. Um, and I, I know you might hit on this in a little bit, but one of the, the weaknesses of this defense can be if you try to do a straight line closeout, okay, butt to the basket, you know, whether you put one hand up or two hands up, it doesn't matter. But that straight line closeout will kill you because you've given the ball handler a 50-50 chance to go either direction. But we don't want 50-50 chance because one of those is going into the middle. We want to get up on the high side. So we use kind of a banana closeout, get up on their high side. So we call it, you know, a 20, 80, 20% 20 middle, because we'll never stop them all the way to go middle, 80% baseline. And most ball handlers, and, and think about, Steve, think about high school basketball players. Most players are right-handed, okay? Most are dominant dribblers with their right hand. So when a point guard comes down the floor, they will pass most of the time to their right, okay? So they start the ball on the right side of the floor. That person drives to the right, now they make the skip pass because that's the easiest pass to get out of. So now when we close out on that reversal, on that skip pass, we're forcing that player to drive with their left hand. And since that's how the offense works, as long as we're really solid in that initial start of their offense, it actually gets easier on the skip pass because most players don't, don't dribble as well with their left hand and don't make as good of a decision or as quick of a decision with their left hand. Mm -hmm. so, so we've got them where we want them. And, and now it's up to us to close out on the right, you know, on the high side and get them to go baseline and put them in a bind. Uh, it makes great sense because if a team is starting the basketball and this is, this is your defense, this is any defense, but if they're starting the initial offense on the right side, which is what they prefer, and then a good defense is going to take that initial action away. Now you're going to the left side, your weak side offensively, 
before you get into any type of angle to actually hurt and attack the defense, the defense is controlling that possession, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's, that's the goal. Now I know, you know, you, it flips the other way and say, okay, well, what happens when the, the ball goes down the left side of the floor and they started on the left, you know, that's fine. It's not like we have to have them start the ball on the right side of the floor. It's just, we have to be all on the same page, all ready to react when it does get on the, that side of the floor. If they skip it from the right side to the left side, even if we're a little bit off, our timing slightly off. We're not quite to the help side, right where we want to be. We usually have an extra half a second to a second to adjust because of that left hand that I was talking about. If we, if the ball starts on the left-hand side of the floor and they're able to run an action and make a skip pass, now we can't be a half a second to a second late because the person who received the skip pass is going to be that much more quick. They're going to be that much more confident in their ability to penetrate with their right hand. I mean, it just makes the defense's job much harder. And flipping to the offensive side of the game real quick for my players, we want to look to attack the hoop first. If there's no attack there, we want to look at, to get ball reversal. The reason we want the ball reversal is because most teams are weaker defensively once the ball is reversed one time. They get even weaker once it's reversed a second time. So knowing that, we want that ball reversal for us if it's going to be weak it's going to be to a position where the offense is also going to be weak. And that means getting it to the right-hand side first is great. Skipping it to the left puts us in a good position. Absolutely. I mean, I think that any good offensive team is going to have paint touches, whether that's off of a pass, off a dribble drive, and they're going to have ball reversals, changing sides of the court, making the defense close out and rotate. Great for any offense to, offense to do. One thing I didn't ask you was uh, post-defense. With, with the force baseline, what does the post defender do? We, we deny the post. Um, we try to do it 100% of the time. I'd say we're, we're pretty good 75 to 80% of the time actually getting in front. Uh, we usually have one player on the team who just, uh, I'd just say, is just a dog defensively. And there's two guys that really make this defense work great. And, and I like to call them dogs just because they, they get down and they're just tough and they just grind it out. Um, the first one is guarding the point guard. And we might get into that a little bit more, but somebody who can guard the point guard and make them change directions down the floor um, is, helps this defense out a ton. The second is going to be the guy who's guarding the post. And that person is somebody who just is willing to fight for position. You know, we hear sometimes, especially cl clinicians talk about, you know, that foot fight, you know, you're fighting for your foot position is when you get a guy who really wants to dig in there, it doesn't matter how tall they are. Most high school wings, or I'll put point guards in there too, although point guards are better. At the high school level, if you're fronting the post, they are not real good at making that lob pass over the top of their defender, the post defender who's in front, then getting it into their post player with a help side defender behind them. So there's three players defensively that that passer has to think about. And that's an extremely hard thing to do over and over and over, where if we sit behind them or even half front in the post, most wings or point guards, you know, they, they learn how to, you know, fake high and then they're going to go low with a bounce pass. They can make that pass. That's not super difficult. So we try to make it as hard as we can. We've had several instances where we're 6'3", 6'4", in the post, and we're up against a 6'8", 6'9". 
we kind of neutralized that because that pass can't be made consistently. And once they turn it over once or twice, they stop looking at the six, eight kid down low. And it really frustrates the six, eight kid. You know, I don't know what the coach is telling them, but they're trying to run something different because the, the, the kid travels, the kid bobbles the ball. We get the steal. There's a tip. So we try to front the post as much as possible. That's such a great uh, point. And I think that even if you're running other defenses, fronting the post can be so beneficial. We had coach Brian Morehouse of Hope College on, and I can't remember if it was on the podcast or if it was after when we were just chatting, but he was talking about the benefits of fronting the post at the college level, college players that, that can pass. He's like, it's just such a tough pass. And if our, if our post defender is doing a great job denying and fronting, and we have some, some help side defense on the other side, you've taken away an entire aspect of the game of basketball. And it seems like a little more for women's basketball, especially the post game is, is really being utilized a little more. I'd like to see that more in the, the men's side, actually. Um, it's, it's a great thing to apply, no doubt about that. Now, I'm assuming your, what does your help side defender do if the ball's on the left wing, they're fronting the left post, where's the locations of the weak side? Well, whoever is on the, the backside and in, in getting over to the help side, whoever the lowest person is has to be yelling out low. That is a key in this defense. If the low person on the help side does not communicate that to the rest of the team, their teammates cannot play as aggressive as we want them to. So communication is huge. Now that can change a lot because players don't always stay in one spot on the offensive side. So as the players move, someone may, one of the help side defenders may rotate down and be a, a new low man. Well, that person has to take over the responsibility of communicating. Uh, but again, they're splitting the court in half. They're standing in the middle of the lane. They are pretty close to underneath the basket that low guy is. So they're right in, if we think about kind of the arc they have in the NBA and in college, the charge line there, uh, that's the area that they're going to be in. Uh, and they're there, especially when there's a post player trying to post up, they're looking for and anticipating that lob pass to try to come over the top. Uh, they don't necessarily have to steal it, but they need to be in a good position to, you know, wall up and not allow that post defender to, or the post player um, to make a good solid move, that kind of thing. Uh, then they're also anticipating any skip pass or anything like that. So they can get out on that weak side. Uh, now, one thing that is unique for the help side defenders is you're not always going to be guarding the same person. And what I mean by that is if there is a skip pass, we tell whoever can get to that skip pass, or if there's a ball screen or something uh, that happens up top and there's a pass made to the wing, whoever can get out to that pass first gets there. So they're in a little bit of a zone defense almost in the help side. And if, if one player can get there more quickly, they need to take advantage of their positioning and get there. The other help side defender needs to adjust to that. And they, they do kind of have to look and scan, okay, who is left open? But we drill this. I mean, this is something that it doesn't take very long for them to, to realize. Um, I think we're slower when we try to stay with one man all the time on the help side. When we just look at it as can I get out there faster than anyone else? Okay, that's my man. Because the second guy notices, all right, my teammate's already there. I've got to go somewhere else. So they, you have a little different mentality on the backside, where on the ball side, 
you, you strictly have a man. You are guarding the ball to the baseline. You are fronting the post. You are denying the reversal pass. Much more strict rules than the help side defender has. I love that. And you've done a great job painting the picture for these locations, off-ball defense. Let's talk on-ball defense. What are some of the things that you teach and emphasize for the on-ball defender? And we can, we can get specific to locations on where the basketball is at as well. Sure. The, let's start at the top of the key with the point guard. Uh, one of the most difficult things I think in the game to guard is a dynamic point guard. If, if you've got a player who can penetrate, you've got a, a player who can, you know, stop and pop, pull up on the three point line. I mean, a dynamic point guard is, is extremely hard to guard. And that's where I'll go back to that dog on defense with somebody who can just get down and flat out wants to, you know, hawk the ball and just be all over it. We want the ball out of that player's hands. Now, if they're not dynamic, we certainly don't want to give them a bunch of time, but now that dog on defense is going to bother them so much that that, that point guard who's just, let's say mediocre is going to have a tough time going four quarters against us where the dynamic point guard may not have a tough time for four quarters, but he certainly isn't going to be able just to run his normal stuff. Uh, so we want to, we want to play straight up when we're inside the lane lines. Okay. So we were coming down, not favoring one side or the other, trying to keep them on the top of the roof, as we talked about earlier. Once the ball gets over on the wing, we want to have our defenders high foot be just above the offensive players high foot. Now, when I say high foot, it's the one towards the half court line. Okay. So we want to be just above it. And we don't want to, we got to make sure that we're not angling ourselves to give the offensive player a straight line to the, to the hoop. And that's where a lot of players, especially at the younger levels, when we start teaching in the ninth grade, they get out there and they think they've got to get their high foot up above, but then they angle their body and they just leave the hoop wide open. What you've got to discipline yourself and you're almost, so you're parallel to the sideline. So you're, you know, that sideline's going straight down. You want both of your feet you know, to be almost parallel to the sideline so that we're forcing baseline, not allowing a straight line drive to the basket. That is probably for the wing defenders. That is just a habit. It's got to be drilled over and over and over. And we do a lot of stopping. We do a lot of correcting. We show it on film so that, you know, the players get it at the ninth grade, they get it at the 10th grade. By the time they get up to the varsity level, they've got a good idea, but the game is so much faster that it's still, we, we, that's something we work on a lot in the, in the early parts of the season. Um, but making sure that we're, we're above on the high foot and then we're not giving them the basket, but we're angling them towards the, towards the baseline is, is what we work on quite a bit. And this is where the athleticism piece comes in. If you can convince your kids that you can guard anybody and we do this, we got kids who are linemen in football. You know, we got kids that, you know, basketball is fun, but their, their favorite thing is baseball. Anybody can get their high foot on the high side. Anybody can get themselves positioned to force baseline. And you know, your help is going to be there. You just got to dig down and you just got to, no matter that kid's quick, no matter if they're a better athlete, no matter if they're taller, they're shorter, it doesn't matter. You can guard them for one possession. And our kids truly buy into that because they know where everybody's supposed to be and what they're supposed to do. Does this concept um, with, with the roof and the walls of the house, the on-ball defender is the point guards bringing the basketball up. Where does that start as far as essentially 
I always call it, we got to flip the hips if we're, if we're going to force um, and, and keep on the sideline. Does that start when they're bringing the basketball up in the, in the back court? Does it start once they get past the half court line, closer to the volleyball line? What does that look like? Well, we press all the time. Okay. okay? And our, our press uh, principles push everybody. And on a, on a high school court, especially, you've got the volleyball lines. Okay, so we we want to keep people outside those volleyball lines as much as possible. Now, with the point guard, we will not overplay a point guard so much to keep him outside the the volleyball lines and and give him space just to speed dribble past us. That doesn't make any sense. So when we're in transition, we would like to, you know, get them to, to change directions as many times as possible. And that's why we have our wings lay off of their man just a little bit because we want the point guard to feel some pressure and say, wait a minute, you know, Steve's, Steve's open on the right wing. I'm going to pass it to him. I'm getting a lot of pressure right now. I, there's a quick release for me. Perfect. As soon as you hit the, the guy on the wing, now we're getting up on the high side. We're not allowing that reversal pass. That's the pass we want them to make. So the, it, we want pressure on the ball. And this goes into the transition defense just a little bit. One thing that I, I truly think is, is undercoached probably at all levels, but certainly at the high school level is transition defense. Think about this as a point guard for a second. You're coming down. It doesn't matter if you've made a basket, missed a basket, you're coming down in transition and you have somebody picking you up 94 feet just to give you pressure every single time down the floor. If you do that for all four quarters, that point guard not only is gonna be more fatigued physically, but mentally they're getting fatigued as well. And then you start adding in the fact that we press a lot. We're getting the ball out of the point guard's hands so much of the time to make other people make decisions that now all of a sudden those players who aren't used to making decisions have to make them. So in, in my mind, if we can tire the point guard out mentally and physically, that's their best ball handler decision maker. Who do they have to come in to do that? Even if it's say a, their best player, so to speak, is a different position. That person is not used to handling those responsibilities. They're used to getting the basketball in a position to score, and make something happen. Well, now you've got your best player in a position to try to start the offense and we're still going to pick you up, but that's what we try to do all game. Wear them out physically, wear them out mentally, put somebody else in a position to have to try to make a play, but it's all under the premise of shorten the court, keep them on one side for some baseline because now their choices are limited and the choices they have are things we've drilled and we've worked on in practice and we can adjust to. You know, we've all seen teams that apply so much pressure, but with an elite guard, okay, you're just making the game easier for right. them actually, because right. they bop, 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 and they're going to change direction faster than you are. And all of a sudden it's a five on four. Um, those are great details. What are some of the things that you use with your team to really teach the on-ball defense? Well, there's, there's a couple of drills that, that we use quite a bit. That they're really basic, simple. The first one is teaching our players to take their high foot and to make, you talk about, coaches always talk about guarding their yard. Okay, you got to guard three feet one way, three feet the other. Well, that, that principle still applies to a certain extent, but when we want to be on the high side on, on the wing, we'll say, if that player tries to drive middle on us, we've got to be able to step straight up towards half court. Okay. We don't want to open ourselves up. We don't want to swivel our hips. As you said, open it up for a drive. 
you've got to keep your chest in front of the, the ball and step straight towards the half court line. We have gotten so many charges over the years of players just making that one step and then the, the offensive player just runs into them. Okay, every once in a while, we do get a blocking call on it, but we, did, we praise that like crazy. We, we let kids know that is exactly what we're going to do. That kid now knows you're not going to allow him to get into the middle without a fight. And when he does that, they're more likely to go to the baseline. Okay, so one of the things that will get you on the bench real fast is open up that top foot and let him drive in towards the free throw line, you know, that, that kills the defense. So we're working on that. One way we work on that is we just get on the sideline and, you know, I'll get the a whistle and I'll blow it. And the guys work on just one huge step out one and I blow it again, one huge step out. And then we'll do it where they have to do two big steps. So two huge steps where they're, they're constantly keeping their feet wide. They're stepping, you know, acting like they're stepping up towards the half court line. Uh, it seems kind of like an old school drill. Like you would see like in the movie Hoosiers or something, you know, that, what basketball sense does this have? This isn't a small-sided game. There's no decision-making. Now, we're drilling the repetition that we know is going to get a result because there, there isn't a decision-making process there. The, the decision is step up, and, and that, that's it. That's all we want them to do because we know we've gotten so many charges out of that. So that's one drill that, that we do. The second one that we do is where we actually roll the ball out and we have a player uh, we, we roll it out on the floor. It gives the defense just a little bit of time uh, to close out on the high side. And then they've got to, you know, work on funneling to the baseline. In the beginning, we make it uh, real simple. Offensive player, you've got to drive to the baseline. But let's the defense get a feel for it. And then we move to, uh, you can try to drive middle now. Defense, you can't let them get in the middle. We just worked on stepping up. You know, we, then we went and we worked on going baseline. You've got them both in. Now you don't know what the offensive player is going to do. Now you've got, this is where the decision-making comes in. You've got to adjust to what the offense does. Uh, that works really well, starting to get a feel for things. The third one that we add. Let me, can I interrupt you real quick yeah. for the third one? What does that, what does that drill look like as far as where the pass is coming from? I'm just trying to visualize exactly what that looks sure. like in my head. We have, we have um, two, one player on each block down low. Okay. They, they both are facing the baseline. Okay. The, the player with the ball rolls the ball, you know, through the paint out to the wing. All right. And when they do that, when they roll it out, the, the first player on the block is the offensive guy. He runs over, gets the ball. The second player has a little bit longer of a, uh, a run to make, but he's going to run out and he's going to close out on the, the offensive guy who's picking the ball up. Uh, so the role makes it, controllable because if we pass it there you're not passing it to anybody you know so we, we we roll it out there um let the offensive player have a chance to go out and get it as he's picking the ball up now we're closing out defensively um and so hopefully hopefully that paints a little bit of a picture where the two guys are starting on the block and how the farthest guy on the block is the one with the ball and he's the one who's got just a little bit more time to close out and all of that is especially in the beginning these, these are drills that we do in the beginning of the year to really teach and ingrain, you know, the fundamentals and the footwork that we want defensively. So if I'm on defense, I'm on the say right block and you are on the, the left block, I roll it to the wing that you're on. Yes. You, you go off and get it. 
And as I roll the basketball, do I go as soon as I've released the ball, I start my closeout, or do I need a wait? How does that look? No, in, in this particular drill, it, it's it's pretty much as soon as you you roll the ball out. You know, it creates just a little bit cool. of a, a gap. Yep. Um, th there are some other drills. It'd be hard to explain, you know, on a sure. podcast um, where there is the, the defense has to work a little bit harder and has to get out there a little bit faster in the beginning stages. This is just about getting the proper footwork, the proper angle and everybody going in the right direction. So this would be a pretty slow drill the first time we do it mm -hmm. because kids come out and they close out in a completely wrong position or they're playing butt to the basket and, and they're not putting themselves high foot above the offensive players high sure. foot. And we've got to adjust all that stuff first. Awesome. And then you were going to add a, a third thing that you the, really the, like to do. The third, the third drill at just adds a help side. So we've got a similar action with two players, but now all of a sudden um, we, we put two players on each block and we run the same action with the, on the ball player, the, the help side guy gets in the help side. Um, and the second offensive player goes over to the opposite wing. So now there's a skip pass involved. Uh, there's also when the when the ball drives to the baseline, our help side man is coming over to trap or to cut off that baseline drive. Um, it, so it starts to build in that help side principle as well of where should I be compared to my man if he's on the opposite wing? When do I come over to help trap and stop the baseline drive and just go over the responsibilities that help side has? That brings me to a question that I forgot to ask earlier was if that player does beat the player baseline so they've they've turned the corner on that defender going baseline you talked about that help side baseline defender back end defender stepping out on the baseline what does that look like so we'll first i'll answer it with a post player and then i'll answer it without a post okay in there if if we shouldn't get totally beat okay so if we're beat defensively that will hurt us no matter what um so let's hopefully we've got some containment there and we're forcing a baseline. But if there's a post defender down there, the post defenders in the front of the post, they're in a great position to step out and to trap that drive on the baseline. All right. Now the post player, if they, they curl up to the, the elbow area, if they step into the middle to try to get a dump pass, our help side takes care of that. All right. So the post defender now has a new responsibility on the drive and that's to trap with the on ball defender. Now let's say that that, the post is either the high post or they're playing a five out. So there's nobody in the post that low man that we had mentioned earlier, that low man now is the, the trap. So as the ball gets driven to the baseline, the low man, as soon as he believes that the offensive player is committing to the drive, he leaves to go trap. I've tried it in the past by saying, okay, if they get past the, the 15 foot mark, if they get past this little hash in our court, if they, whatever, it's when you believe that the offensive player is, has put their head down and they're driving or they're, they're making a move to, to score, you are coming out to trap them. So sometimes that happens a little earlier. Sometimes it's a little bit later, but our players have to be trained to, to find when they think that that offensive player is a true threat. Uh, if I just give them a spot on the floor, what happens is you got a real dynamic player, real good athlete, well, they can do a whole lot in a, just a very small space. But then you get a kid who's not as athletic, not as good of a player. They need a lot more time to develop everything. So every situation is slightly different. And so that, that low man really has to say, all right, I think he's in a scoring threat. I think he's putting his head down. I'm going. 
and then they come out on that drive. Before we get back to the episode, I want to thank you for listening to the Coach's Edge podcast. And if you find this episode beneficial, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. That goes a really long way as we continue to build the Coach's Edge. And most of all, share this episode out with someone else who you think also may find it beneficial. That's what the Coach's Edge is all about, trying to give you an edge, an advantage. Let's get better together. Back to the show. You talked about the body and the footwork positioning of the defender, especially when they're on the sideline, on the wing. But as we know, so much about the game is the space. And so what do you teach as far as if you're on the wing and I'm guarding you, how much space do I give you, whether it's, you know, arms length away, elbow length away, what does that look like? Or is that specific based on the player as well? Uh, we, we teach arms length away. Okay. We do. Uh, one of the, my big pet peeves is defensive players who get in this nice, you know, kind of cute defensive stance, but have no effect on the ball whatsoever. You know, they're low, their hands are up. They might even be talking, but they're, they're not doing anything to affect. So I tell the guys, if the offensive player has a chance to bring the ball over, change directions, rip it through, put it above their head, and they're, they look comfortable, I don't care if you're an arm's length away or you're seven feet away or whatever, is, that's not pressure defense. Pressure defense starts with arm's length away because now you can, you know, you're in proximity to control what the offensive player does with your body a little bit more with your hands and stuff. But if, if that offensive player is really comfortable, you might have to move a little bit closer. Your voice might have to get louder. Your, your hands might have to move more. We should, on the tape, we should be able to see that that player either got into a, say, a triple threat position and couldn't get out of it comfortably, or they got rid of that ball so fast because they were uncomfortable based on your defensive position. So I, I'm not a huge stickler on, you know, how far is your butt off the ground and, you know, where exactly are your hand positions? Is one high, is one low, is whatever. Is what you're doing bothering the offensive player? And that is something that we can visibly see on tape and the players can really get an idea. And boy, we've had some guys who really buy into that, that pressure defense mentality and they get up and they can't get too close. So I want to make this clear, especially coaches. If you're, I get a lot of questions about this defense. So coaches are listening to this players like to get their hips into the offense. So the defensive player wants to get so close that their hips are right next to the offensive player. That works if you are trapping in a dead ball situation. If that ball is not dead and you get your hips too close, you are in a position to get beat. And we, we have to be careful because I think it's like a middle school thing, to be honest, is they learn this like pressure defense is get right up body them. But the kids aren't skilled enough at middle school just to put the ball on the floor and go around you. Well, at the varsity level, the kids, one dribble, they got their hips past you. As a defender, you're done. The, the defense is broken down. So arm's length away keeps you at a safe distance where you can still move your hips as well. I like that because you have some specifics that you really teach your players, but at the same time, you're not putting in all of these rules where do this, don't do that. Right. Uh, I remember, I want to say it might have been in college, where it was always go out, and when a player catches it, two hands. <laughs> following the ball. You remember, remember oh, doing yeah. some of those? Oh yeah. And uh, 
as a player, I remember doing it. It's like, I feel really uh, kind of naked out here guarding, <laughs> guarding the ball, right? I've shrunk myself. Yeah, I got long arms. Now I can't use them. Right. I've put them both and I can do with two hands what I could actually just use one with if yeah. I wanted to. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things that sometimes we just need to well, let players do what they do. Well, that and I'll go to close out here real quick. Yeah, that's a, that's another thing I want to ask about anyway. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, I have heard so many coaches talk about closeouts. Is it a one-hand closeout? Is it a two-hand closeout? You know, obviously the distance you close out, I said arm's length away, so I kind of have an opinion on that. Uh, but when I watch, I've seen college teams especially, they, they practice these two-hand closeouts, and I go and watch a game, and I don't see any two-hand closeouts. I mean, it is so rare. Or if the kid does it, they go out and they close out with two hands, and then the dribbler goes by them because they don't have their arms to move and use with momentum and all of that. So I don't teach the players to, to close out with one or with two. Here's what we tell our guys though, is you need to get out there as fast as possible in a position to guard the drive, but also in a position to challenge the shot. And we do drills that to help ingrain this in the players. We call it the up with the shooter drill. We are always the second jumper. Again, this paints a picture for them. And I think that's so important with athletes of any age is paint a picture of what you want them to do. Arms length away. You can see what that looks like. Force baseline. You can see what that looks like. Second jumper. We know what that looks like. So we don't have to block the shooter, but we have to, especially in high school, college is slightly different because shooters are so much better, you know, across the board on the team. But in high school, if you can get in the vision of most shooters, you can do enough to throw them off. Okay. Now there are some elite level kids and every team's got a good shooter and that kind of thing. You make some adjustments, but generally speaking is if we're the second jumper with a hand up, we can, uh, we can make that shooter have to notice us and, and bother them a little bit. So. I love that. And uh, I was, we had John Spruance, who's a assistant coach at uh, Southern Indiana. And he talked about the importance of working and practicing on closing out on defense but he's like, we don't teach them to do anything technique wise on defense. You just got to do it. Yep. Right. And so you've, you've I'm, said in, that, the same I'm thing. in that same boat is yeah. you have got to bust your butt to get in position. But I think players know like athletically, if you're an athlete of any kind, you know how to get down, you know how to jump quick. I mean, these are things we can work on to become better in, mm -hmm. but there isn't a technique that I can teach every single player across the board that will make every single player better. A two hand closeout, in my opinion, gives up the drive too much and it's hard to jump. I mean, how, how do you jump with two hands up? You put your hands down so that you can jump up. Now a one hand closeout might be good. And we will talk some specifics about closeouts. Um, most players are right-handed. So how do we want to close out if we think they're a shooter? You know, getting your left hand up it puts your hand right in position where the ball is for that shooter. Okay. So that might be something we mentioned. If the kid's left-handed, we might talk about, you know, getting your right hand up and making sure that, you know, you're, you're right in the same spot as where the ball is uh, for that shooter. We talk a little bit, but that's, that is very specific to a certain player or to mm -hmm. a really quick shooter, that kind of thing. Generally, get yourself out there, use your athletic skills that you've learned over the years and just bust your can. And that is what works best. Yep, yep. You 
you practice it, you repeat it, you learn from those experiences um, more so than this specific technique is going to work for every single player. So that's that's your mini podcast episode within the force baseline <laughs> defense episode on closing out, at least uh, getting your, your and my two cents on it, at least. That's right. Coach, uh, how do you go about defending ball screens and dribble handoffs? Ball screens, we, we hard hedge on everything, especially in the beginning of the year. Um, we, the reason that we hard hedge, and again, you, you hear me refer a lot to this, you know, in high school, it, I, I think it's somewhat true in college as well, but high school just have a limited skill set, um, usually with all of your players, but we hard hedge and we try to get that, that player to either have to make a dribble higher than what they wanted to, which slows the action down, allows our, de our defender um, to get through that screen, or it forces them back the direction they were coming. And either way, it's doing something that is benefiting us and giving us time. Uh, if it's on, the, that would really be if it's kind of in the top of the key. So we're, we're setting a ball screen on a point guard. If we get onto the wings, the reason we hard hedge is because we want to keep it on that side. Okay, we hard hedge, it, it keeps the ball on that side of the floor. It doesn't allow them to reverse the, the ball with the dribble. So uh, that's the beginning of the year. We will do some stuff um, as we get used to that, especially your bigs. A lot of times your bigs don't, they've never had to work hard enough to hard hedge and then to get back to their man. So this forces them to really have to dig in and to start to learn what and see what working hard is. And in the beginning, we give up a few things, but then all of a sudden they, they start to see it on tape and they start to understand it. And I think they make that jump from what I thought working hard was to what working hard really is, as two different things. And they make that jump for us. Once I think they've gotten it, then we will allow for some switching. Now I've had the fortune to have pretty good athletes uh, where we've been able to switch almost all five positions. But a lot of times it's one through four, and maybe our five man is the one that we won't switch with. Uh, direct handoffs, because they happen between a wing and a point guard most of the time, those are almost always an automatic switch for us because we can keep so much pressure on them. Now, when we get really good at this, our, our automatic switch will still look like a hard hedge because we're trying to keep them on the baseline. If this is a, a wing where, the, where most direct handoffs you know, happen, um, it still looks like that hard hedge that we've been working on, but we actually will switch players. We're just, what we're trying to do is keep the ball on that sideline and, and keep it forced baseline. If we, if we just open ourselves up and allow that direct handoff, and then we're just gonna kind of shuffle with them as the player dribbles across the, the top of the key, well, it doesn't really stick with our defensive principles. So that hard hedge lends us into direct, a direct handoff defense a lot easier. Do you switch off ball screens? Um, it, I let the players decide and it's, it's communication. Um, we really, really get our guys to believe any one of you can guard anybody on the floor for one possession. So if you switch, even if that's not your man, our biggest guard and the point guard, you know, our, our, maybe a step slow kid is guarding somebody who's a quick offensive player. If you play the defense the way that we've designed it, any of you can guard anybody for one possession or until we can switch back. So we let the players decide. I, I don't give a lot of hard rules, you know, in terms of like, you can do this, you can't do that. The more the players have to think about what I want, 
the less they do what they have to do on the floor. So I want to give them the parameters and the freedom to make those decisions. Now, like I said, one through four, a lot of times we'll switch things. The five man, we won't. And that's if the five man doesn't move. That's not a hard rule. If the five man can move, we'll switch one through five. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of times that you have to adjust things, but generally speaking, here are the rules to live within. If you can live with them, you guys get to make a bunch of decisions the way you want to play it. And then that's worked pretty well for us. Yeah, I like that. So, so the question every coach is, is asking with any defense that they're thinking about putting in is, okay, if we do this, what's going to give us the most trouble? So you talked about the dynamic point guard. Are there any other things that are really given you trouble in the past that you've had to spend some extra time on? The, by far, the number one is the dynamic point guard. I mean, with, with which is play. every, every defense, every, right? Every defense. <laughs> exactly. Um, you've got to be able to control that first. Um, coaches have gotten creative with how they attack it. To be honest, some coaches will, they know we want to force baseline. So they will drive the baseline and they work on a hard skip pass, make that skip pass that, you know, the guys will jump in the air you know, throw a rocket with two hands to the other side and make it, uh, make that pass as hard as possible and as quick as possible. And that does make it harder for us to adjust. Um, so sometimes there are things like that, that we have to be ready for, and we can't expect a lob pass every single time. Um, the, uh, there are coaches who have tried doing some pin down screens on the backside. So they drive the baseline, they pin down on the backside, um, to give our defender a little bit more of a, a hassle. They can't just make a straight line, you know, close out or a banana close out, I should say. Uh, we've got to get around the defender, that pin down screen. Uh, so those are, those are a couple of things that we've had to throw some adjustments in. We've had to work on in practice. My first year or two, nobody did any of that stuff. So I, I just don't think that coaches were used to seeing this style of defense. Um, and then in my third and fourth year, we started to see more screens and skip passes. We also started to see um, more players. They work the, they work harder to get the reversal pass. So they will actually have their players uh, reverse it up towards the volleyball line. So they're not getting a reversal pass on the three-point line. They're, they're positioning their players up by the volleyball line to try to get a reversal pass because we don't deny the ball way up there. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. I know teams do it. But if, if the offense wants to reversal pass and they want to go way above the volleyball line, they really have to reset their offense. And with no shot clock, you know, um, they, they have the luxury of doing that. With a shot clock, I think that would hurt them a lot more. We don't have that in Michigan. Uh, but what it does is it gives our defense a chance to reset as well. So I'm not real upset if they get way up there. What I don't want is a re quick reversal or reversal pass by the three-point line, because that can get really difficult to defend. So, so that's, that doesn't give us a lot of problems. It's just an adjustment I've seen teams make because they want the ball to get to revert, reverse still. Right. I just think that's an adjustment we can make. Big part of any defense is the initial getting back on defense, the transition. So mm -hmm. is there anything that you emphasize with your team to make sure that you you're getting back in transition defense. And does that also affect anything that you would do with your team when it comes to offensive rebounding? Yeah, I'll try to keep this as short as possible for, <laughs> for all of our listeners. Um, but I, I said earlier, I think transition defense is one area that just is over 
it's overlooked. It's undercoached um, at a lot of different levels. I was actually watching a clip the other day on Twitter. Um, the coach posted in their game, their transition offense and how it just kind of flowed and they scored on it. The, the problem I have with, with it was the transition defense was non-existent. I mean, that, that coach had obviously had a plan in place and they executed it well, but I don't think the opposing team, the defensive team had any plan to stop it. And that's, that's what I never want to have happen with our team is there are four phases of the game. You got your half court offense and defense, and then you've got your transition offense and defense. Three out of those four are worked on all the time. Uh, the fourth being, or the one that's not is being that transition defense. We want to pick the ball up as soon as we can at any point, made basket, missed basket. It's not a, a full on press. Okay. It's just putting pressure. We do not, a lot of teams like to run the, the sideline break. You know, they see Tom Izzo do it. They want to run that sideline break or they want to flow into uh, their, their early offense. They run some kind of Carolina break or something that flows into an action. If you pick the ball up, you're not allowing the ball to be passed ahead as quickly. You're not allowing the offense to flow into what they want to do as easily. So we pick it up. Um, it helps a ton with allowing our players to transition back and to get in good defensive position. It helps wear the, the point guard out mentally and physically, in my opinion. I've got every year, I've got one or two kids on my bench who want to get on the floor and they will buy into being the defensive you know, dog on the ball. They, you know, that's their ticket to getting game time. And we've had some kids who, who pick that role up and just run with it. And they're not, they're not the starter. They're not the star. They may not score a point, but man, they will get after it on the defensive end and pick that guy up full court. So I think that's a, another role that we can add and we get more kids into the game. Um, so in the transition defense, we, that's something that we always have to do. I had a sophomore point guard last year. It's not always your point guard. We don't tell our point guard, you have to be the one to pick the ball up because that could work opposite for us. They could, we could wear our own point guard out. But I just so happened I had a sophomore point guard, very talented athletically, very nice player. And, and he was the guy who took the responsibility of picking up the ball. And I tell you what, he, he didn't get it in the beginning of the year, but by mid-year, going into the end of the year, he was so good at getting that, their point guard to have to adjust to him. Um, it's going to be exciting to see what he does this year and what he does as a senior because his, his on-the-ball pressure is so great. But that transition, that's the biggest part of transition defense. I don't care what coaches do in terms of you have one under the hoop. How do you guard the wings? We have a system that we have in place to, to stop all of that stuff. The first thing we want to do is having a point guard just fly down the floor and attack us. The second thing is we don't want them to be able to pass up the floor without having to think about us. So we pick the ball up every time. Great stuff. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you're starting to incorporate this with your younger level. So what does that look like with the force baseline, with your JV, with your freshmen, all the way down? Well, it, we, we have, we, it starts in the middle school a little bit. In the middle school, we're, it, they're such a short season. We don't ask them to try to do a ton, uh, but start to teach your basic man-to-man. -man, and we do teach the butt to the basket. We don't want them to play zone. That doesn't really fit into what we're doing. Uh, and start to see, especially by the eighth grade, start to teach them help side principles a little bit. You know, let them know where the help side guy is supposed to be. But then when they get to the ninth grade, uh, we, we have uh, Coach Ouellette does a fabulous job with our ninth graders in starting to teach them how to position themselves, how to force baseline, how to come over. And he understands that there's going to be some growing pains 
with that. Kids aren't going to do it right. We can't always choose who plays and who doesn't play based upon uh, if they were the right exact angle or they played the defense perfectly because it's, it's habits. And kids have to be in game-like situations to create those habits. If every time a kid makes a mistake, we pull them out and put them on the bench at the ninth grade level, they're not, they're going to be thinking about not, you know, doing that. I don't want to get pulled out. That's in their mind, not how do I play the defense? So I think he does a really good job with that. Um, we've, we've had the same JV coach, coach Callaway, uh, up till this year, his son's now in college and he's going to kind of follow the college career of his son. Uh, so he stepped away, but, um, coach Callaway ramped it up a bit and said, all right, now you guys know it. Now playing time is starting to be determined by execution. You've got to be able to execute the fundamentals that you learned last year. And he did a really nice job preparing our kids. And then by the time they get to the varsity, my job offensively and defensively is you guys have all of the, the tools. How do we use those with the most intensity and at the fastest pace possible? Because when we start adding um, intensity and pace and just overall focus to what we're trying to do, our whole team's game are just is ramped up. So I'm not throwing a ton of new stuff at these guys. The, the place where that gets to be a little bit sideways is we did have a foreign exchange student a couple of years ago. <laughs> Great player. He's playing in college here in the States right now. Uh, but he had me for one year and we tried to throw all this stuff at once. And he did a really good job. He was a good player coming in. But, you know, had I had him a second year, he would have been way more effective at it. So that, mm -hmm. that's where you get a couple of like little tweaks. But we'll, we'll take a good player uh, any day foreign exchange student, a kid who moves in. Uh, we, we don't turn any of them away because you haven't played in the system with us. Uh, Absolutely. I love how you, you're slowly progressing it up through the youth levels. And as much as you're teaching some of those concepts, you know, the, as I say, the, the biggest mistake you can make is not making any. And so you're, you're teaching them how to do it. You're not torturing them if they make a mistake. And if we don't make any mistakes, especially at those younger levels, we're not learning anything. We're not gaining anything mm -hmm. out of it. And um, kids can, we can all have some of that paralysis by analysis, right? We just say, I have to do this right. And then we end up doing everything wrong because we're getting in our own head. That's great. Great stuff. Is there anything that we haven't touched on or anything that might come as a surprise to our listeners with this defense? Probably nothing that's come to a surprise. The biggest thing I would tell teams, and, and I have coaches who ha from really all over the country who have um, tried to learn the defense and have implemented it, and they call me or, or email me about different situations. The, the biggest thing is you have to understand that these are habits that you're creating in your players. And unfortunately, habits aren't created in one or two practices. You know, and, and when I say habits, physically they're habits, but mentally they're habits too. They need the mental reps. They need to see it on film. They need to see what they did wrong. My first year, and I'll give you two scenarios here. My first year at the college level running this, um, we, we went eight and 21. I mean, not real great. I mean, no, nobody's going to play this defense because I went eight and 21 with it. The second year, we had a lot of the same players. And of course, we brought in some new recruits. Uh, we were a top 10 team in the country. We ended up going 21 and eight. Uh, we, we just totally flipped it. Same, everything the same with the exception of a couple of new recruited players. The players who came back just understood things so much better. My first year not Seagull, we were 11 and 11. The second year we had it, we're 19 and two. 
the biggest difference. Offense didn't change. Of course, we had some kids graduate. We brought some new kids on. That kind of stuff happens at high school. Uh, the biggest thing is those kids who came back really understood what we're trying to do. And now all of a sudden you incorporate those principles into any sort of press that you're going to run. You start incorporating those into any zone you're going to run. We use the same principles in any defense we run and the kids get it. So that second year makes things a lot easier. So you got to ingrain the habits mentally. You got to ingrain them physically, but then you just got to believe in the kids and get them to believe in themselves. And once they believe in themselves and in the team, it gets to be a whole lot of fun watching them run around and just go crazy with intensity. Absolutely. Know, with purpose. So Absolutely. I love it. Success takes time. It's, it it's good. It's anything worth doing takes time at that. What you mentioned reminds me of, I was working with a, a point guard who we end up helping play at the, the college level. But when he was in high school and I was talking with his high school basketball coach, and we were really working on a shot and the coach wanted this, this answer from me. And all of a sudden that was going to fix his point guard shot because he was quick. He could handle, he could pass. He really struggled with shooting. So they, they asked me to come in, help him with the shooting. And I was like, listen, I can tell you, you know, A, B, C, and D of what he's not doing on his, his jumper. But number one, you got to make those adjustments yourself. Right. And two, it's going to take thousands of repetitions and hours in order to get any results. And uh, just because you may understand a problem that you didn't understand before, doesn't mean you found the solution and everything is fixed. You just know the answer. You still have to take (laughs) years and years to apply now what you've learned. And I think that's the thing with this podcast, with what you're doing with your, your coaching website. What I try to do with players and coaches is, you know, we can give you information we can give you things that we've learned but just because you know it now doesn't mean you fix the problem right, right. T- you have to apply it again and again and again and learn from your own mistakes so we can actually get some of that success and you're a perfect example of that at the college and high school level um can't thank you enough for being on, on the show coach why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do to help other basketball coaches around the country? Yeah. The, the first thing I say is, you know, they can, they can find me on social media, you know, if they have questions or, or anything um, on, on Facebook, on Twitter on LinkedIn. Uh, most of them are at coach Matt Dennis uh, is where they can find me there. But my website is coachmattdennis.com and it's built as a, as a coach's resource. Some of the resources are free. There's a coaching lab, which is a, a paid side of it. Uh, but what you'll find is, coaching courses there's an entire course on this force baseline defense so coaches want to um, there's two different ebooks that go along with it they can get drills uh, defensive drills I break down tons of scenarios um, for them I give them some video clips to watch all that kind of stuff so they can see a, an entire course on this defense there uh, but they'll find way more than that on there it's really a curated place uh, there's a drill bank that was just put up as well so there's a couple hundred drills that they can search sort you know, filter through um, to find not just on defense, but offense as well. Um, so lots of resources there for coaches to use. Um, they can also catch me at Matt at coachmattdennis.com if they want to email me at also Matt at coachmattdennis.com. So a lot of things I work with coaches um, from, from all over at all different levels, you know, youth levels all the way up to some college uh, coaches who call about different things. So I'm, I'm always happy to talk the guy side, the girl side, doesn't matter to me. Basketball's basketball. 
So I'll make sure to put all of your contact information in the show notes. Um, great stuff today. Uh, great breakdown, deep dive. Coach, thanks uh, for taking the time to be on the Coach's Edge podcast. All right. I appreciate it, Steve. Thanks a lot. Thank you for checking out this episode. A special thank you to Coach Dennis for taking the time to share his knowledge. He paints such a great picture of what it looks like with the force baseline defense. And as I said before, the results speak for themselves. Coach Dennis and I have a lot in common. We're really passionate about the game of basketball and we wanna serve other coaches. So if you wanna reach out to him, I will put all his contact information in the show notes below. You want to reach out to me. My information is there as well. Hit me up on email, contact at KramerBasketball.com, at CoachesEdge1 on Twitter. We'd love to connect with you and see how we can continue to help you move forward, whether that's with a membership, whether that is with future episodes on the podcast, digging into certain areas that you are curious about. We are here to help and give you the edge. Thanks for listening and get after today.